Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Just like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with the service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform, with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to handle your frontline tickets, so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Howdy, folks. Good morning. It is Friday, August 11th. I'm Jacob Cohen, and this is The Hustle Daily Show. On tap for today, we're going to be hearing from Dan Runcie, the founder of Trapital, a media brand covering the economics of hip-hop, along with Mark Dent and Dre Hudson from The Hustle and HubSpot for a preview of a larger episode about the genre's evolution into a global commercial, a technological phenomenon. But first, let's talk about what else is happening in the world of business and tech. Let's get crackalack. Okay, first things first, we've got a luxury merger. Kate Spade and Coach Parent Tapestry Inc. will acquire Michael Kors and Versace Parent Capri Holdings in an $8.5 billion deal expected to generate $12 billion annually and $200 million in cost saving. Brace for a very corporate word coming right up. Synergies. Cost saving synergies. Love that. All right, up next, Disney will bump the prices of its ad-free Disney Plus tier and Hulu by $3, launch its ad-supported $8 tier in Europe and Canada in November, and, like Netflix, crack down on password sharing. The company has had somewhat of a rough year, but with Bob Iger back at the helm, a lot of people have high hopes for what is to come, and hopefully he can work his magic. Speaking of, the annual Emmy Awards have been pushed from September 18th to January 15th due to the ongoing Writers and Actors Guild strikes, which began in May and July, respectively. Fortunately, Hollywood studios and striking writers are supposedly set to meet today for new talks, and let's all hope some progress gets made. On a different note, in other news, ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino said the platform will soon support video chat calls, no phone number required. Pretty cool stuff. Also, Serve Robotics, the delivery startup formerly known as Postmates X before Uber acquired Postmates in 2020, is preparing to go public via a reverse merger with Patricia Acquisition Corp. And finally, WeWork is looking like a poor, limping gazelle in a nature documentary, as Ben wrote in today's newsletter. The company has cheated death twice before in 2019 and 2021, but this time feels different. The co-working company told its investors this week there's substantial doubt it can stay afloat, and to say its stock has plummeted would be disrespectful to the word plummeted. So how did we get here? Well, Ubris certainly plays a role. The exploits of its founder, Adam Newman, are literally already a TV show. There's an insatiable rate of growth and a lack of focus on getting its core business in order. COVID didn't help matters either, but WeWork's first brush with death came before the pandemic, actually. The company spent wildly on leasing, renovating, and outfitting prime real estate around the world, but struggled to afford it all, losing $15 billion since the end of 2017, according to the New York Times. Now, once valued at $47 billion, WeWork's valuation at points this week was more like $250 million. So can this be salvaged? Well, if so, don't expect the company to look the same as it does today. 
WeWork's only path back to viability includes major cost reductions. The CEO also recently left, as have a few board members, plus customers are reportedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, canceling memberships at a faster clip than expected. So, in nature documentary narrator terms, this would sound something like, a defenseless WeWork has left nowhere to hide. The lion is going to pounce. It's going to be a gruesome scene. We are all unable to look away. And that's it for the news today. Coming right up, a segment of our conversation with the founder of Trapital about the economics of hip hop. All right, Dan Runcy, thank you for joining Drea and I today. We're excited to have you here. Mark Drea, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. 50 years ago this summer, hip hop first got going. Dan, which people were kind of some of the first in hip hop to bring marketing into it, to bring business into it, to actually turn hip hop into something that people could buy in those early years? The first person that stands out to me is Sylvia Robinson and what she had done with Sugar Hill Gang. They released what many people feel is the first big recorded music hit single that hip hop has had, Rapper's Delight. But the backstory of that is she's then driving around New Jersey and places trying to find these artists. She sees what's happening on the street level and she says, we need to get these folks into a studio and we need to start Sugar Hill Records. We've clearly seen so much more that has happened over the decades, but that's the origin place that we saw. Yeah, and so she did Rapper's Delight. And then she was also with Grandmaster Flash and The Message in the early 80s. Yep. That was the true like, hey, let's start selling records. Yeah, the next big push that we saw was Def Jam and the start of that label. So that's the mid 80s. They got LL Cool J as a teenager. They have the Beastie Boys. And you started to see more of the branding that came through. There was a particular vibe. There was a sound that came with Def Jam. And so much of hip hop and the business of hip hop is the marketing and being able to push products and have people bought into a feeling that stems broader than the music. And then you also saw Run DMC when their My Adidas song comes out. They are in Madison Square Garden. They take the shoe off. They hold that Adidas shoe up into the air and then they see everyone else in the crowd follow along. That's when you also see the power of this. And those are some of those moments that build and you just see how that continued to snowball and grow over time. Yeah, totally. And it's funny that you mentioned like Run DMC because I always think of them as like pioneering an entirely different category of business when you've got a brand like Adidas really kind of coming in, leveraging this artistry to actually like amplify and promote product. And I think that's something that is continued to go on and is happening right now. Yeah. Dr. Dre stands out to me from what they had done with Death Row, because in the 90s, we started to see more evolution with the economics of the music industry itself and how artists, especially hip hop artists, had started to approach things differently. The 90s was around the time we started to hear more and more troubling stories of artists that were getting hosed by the deals that they were doing. Whether it was TLC, we've heard the stories of how their music is literally making everyone except them millions. We see in 1998, probably the most successful ownership-related deal we've seen in hip-hop, Cash Money signing a distribution deal with Universal. And that was a $30 million deal that they did. And that deal set the footprint for arguably one of the most successful record labels you've seen in hip hop. So many of the conversations we see now stems from some of those business moves from the hip hop leaders. 
At what point do you think a lot of these artists realize the importance of owning their masters? The big wave, at least with the big deals we saw, they initially happened in the 90s, but those are still few and far between. Right. In most cases, the artists and the labels themselves were either imprints under other labels or they were signing more traditional deals. You started to see a bit more of it in 2000s. Artists like Prince as well would have their classic lines about if you don't own your masters, your masters will own you and things like that ringing true. With the internet, a few things happened. The barriers to entry lowered so then artists had a much easier time reaching their fan base directly through YouTube or through SoundCloud or through Datpiff, putting their mixtapes out on there or finding ways to connect with fans directly where they didn't necessarily need to rely on the traditional gatekeepers to do that. That then helped artists build up a base so then by the time they're in a position where they may want to or want to sign to a deal, they can do that, but they have a bit more leverage. So it isn't just reserved for these unicorn entrepreneurs like uh, Master P. Did the internet, you think, drive hip-hop artists to realize, hey, we need to make money elsewhere? Back in the 90s of that era, the goal at the end of the day was to sell CDs. That was what was at the top for so many people. Artists went on tour to try to get people to sell more CDs. Mm -hmm. But now things have flipped, especially with Napster and Kazai and all the other things that we've seen. Certain artists are able to make good money through streaming and artists that do own their rights have been able to do that as well. But a lot of those artists still do benefit from selling other high-end items and using their music as a platform to do that. Are you a vinyl consumer? Are you a streamer? Like, how are you listening to music these days? So I listen primarily through streaming, but I do always try to check and see what is the latest. Even if I'm not necessarily listening, I think checking places like Spotify's top 50 on a regular basis. But it's also understanding that Spotify itself has a distribution skew when you look at where its customer base is relative to all the music viewers in the world. You also have to check YouTube and see what's trending on those charts as well, because they do have a bit more of an international base and see things there. But every platform has its skews. But with so much music, I mean, we see the stats, tens of thousands of tracks being uploaded to digital streaming providers on a daily basis. You have to follow along close to make sure you're not missing things. Yeah. The big thing that is the focus for so many people in the industry right now is AI and how AI specifically is going to continue to impact the experience, not just for listeners, but for artists themselves. Everybody's been talking about AI in part because of fakes and the kind of Drake weekend thing that happened a few weeks ago. But you've suggested that it might actually end up being a good revenue stream for some artists that could use AI. Yeah. Well, I'll take it in two ways. One from the artist's perspective and one from the fan perspective. From the artist's perspective, derivative music and being able to capture more value from what's already been created has been the secret sauce for the music industry for several decades now. When artists first started to sample music and want to put it out there, there was a lot of pushback. A lot of yeah. people were protective about sampling. They didn't want it out there. But you saw how successful songs like MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, where he ends up making Rick James more money than Rick James ever made off a of Super Freak. That's an example of music's derivative work unlocking value. You see it as well with beat production and how it was no longer reserved specifically for the Timberlands and Dr. Dre's and the Neptunes. All of those things just helped increase the pie. And I think AI can do the same because the same way that sampling is derived off of something else, 
if the AI is derived off of the person that is the source for that, it's only going to be as relevant as that source person. Sure. There's no random AI song that captures the zeitgeist. It's relevant because it's Drake. It's relevant because it's The Weeknd or Taylor Swift or Ice Spice. So I think the more that we can realize that and find a correct way to apply some level of attribution, this is how you continue to unlock new opportunities, make music even more interactive, because as gaming has showed us, interactivity is where the money is. Well, Dan Runcy, we really appreciate you coming on with us and talking all things hip hop and covering a lot of ground with us. Mark Dre, this was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah, thanks cool. again. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And bada bing, bada boom, that's going to do it for us today, folks. If you like this segment about the economics of hip hop, we are dropping a full deep dive with Dan on Sunday. So keep an eye out for that. Thanks for tuning in to the Hustle Daily Show. We are a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor today is Robert Hartwig. Our executive producer is Darren Clark. We've got a lot more tech and business coverage in our newsletter. If you are not subscribed, go sign yourself up at thehustle.co slash email. Hope you have an awesome end to the week, an awesome weekend. We'll catch you right back here Monday morning. This is Jacob Cohen signing off. Hey, everybody. I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work. And it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team, Alan, Leanne, Elliot, as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player, Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts.